So uh, since we began this series, I've referred repeatedly to the coming kingdom. And before we get started today, I wanted to take a moment to explain what I mean. So from the moment that that the nation of Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt, they looked forward to a coming kingdom. Their most cherished prophecies hinted that a kingdom would come to deliver God's people and that he would embody the might and mercy of God, this king, and that the land would flourish under this king's scepter. And as they failed to meet the requirements of the law, and as they were haunted by the curses of this broken law, that kingdom became their only hope. Who could restore them but the coming king? Who could defeat their enemies and free them from oppression but the coming king? I think it's worth imagining this for a moment. As his fields burn and as foreign armies linger on the horizon, a father looks to his son and says, Yes, we will weep today, but one day a king will come and he will fight for his people by the might of God and he will govern his people by the mercy of God. That's what I mean on one level when I refer to the coming kingdom. For the nation of Israel... This coming kingdom was a vision of freedom and peace and justice. And that vision was realized when David wore the crown. But only for a moment. David's throne passed away because his was only a shadow of the true coming kingdom. The kingdom which we are currently preparing for. But when we read about David, knowing that he's a shadow of the coming King Jesus, it trains our eyes and it reorients our hope. Christ, the son of David, is the true king of the true Israel of which we are a part. And the story of David was written to fix our hope on Christ's kingdom, which is the hope and end of all the scriptures. As they looked to a coming kingdom, we look to a coming kingdom. As they felt the curse of the broken law and looked to the mercy of a coming king, so we feel the curse of the broken law and look forward to the king who bore that curse. So I mean two things when I say the coming kingdom. For the nation of Israel, I mean the kingdom of David, the anointed of God who fought for his people with might and led his people away from idolatry to worship the true and living God. But for you and I, I mean the kingdom that will arrive when Christ returns. The kingdom founded upon his work, populated by a people purchased with his blood. A kingdom rich with his praise because his people are freed from their enemies, suffering pain, and the final enemy death. The first kingdom has passed. It was a glimpse. It was a shadow. But if we trace carefully the edges of that shadow, we'll know how to prepare for the true kingdom, the kingdom that hasn't yet arrived. This is the purpose of David's story. It's the reason it's written down for us. And it's why we're spending so much time in the story of Samuel. Because the story of David prepares us 
for the coming kingdom of Jesus. And on most days, it does it in a general sense. At a high altitude, we can see the shape and pattern of Christ's work in the life of David. But sometimes we get a closer look. And today is one of those days. So I want you to read with me, not from 1 Samuel yet, but from Matthew chapter 12. See, all you pre-preparers, I just kind of threw everything off just then. Matthew 12, verse 1. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. Let's read together. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is, it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so Jesus and His disciples were walking through a field on the Sabbath. And as they were walking, they were gleaning. A few notes here. What Jesus and his disciples were doing was normal on any other day of the week. The law actually restricted people from harvesting their full field. They were to leave the edges of the field untouched. And if while they're harvesting, grain fell out of the bundles, they were commanded to leave it there for the poor and for the sojourner. So Jesus and his disciples, who were functionally homeless traveling from place to place, dependent on the hospitality of others, they would have been expected to glean from the fields while they were passing through. That wasn't the problem. The problem is that they're doing this on the Sabbath. And everybody in Israel had grown up reading these words. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's pretty clear. Work was forbidden on the Sabbath. You could not travel, which is what the disciples were apparently doing. And you could not pluck grain, which is what the disciples were doing. So the Pharisees who pride themselves on strict adherence to the law see this and demand an explanation. Now, notice for a second what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, that's not work. Not really. He doesn't say that. That, I think, would have been the simplest defense. Instead, he points to a scene in the story of David. And now you can turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 21. 
All right, let's read together. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So if you were here last week, you may remember that David has spent several days and nights hiding in a field while Jonathan worked to discover whether his father, Saul, who is the first king of Israel, truly intended to murder David. And after it becomes very clear that Saul does indeed seek David's life, Jonathan meets him in this field and tells him to leave immediately. And this moment is pretty powerful because Jonathan, who would be the heir to the throne, admits that David is indeed the true king of Israel. So David has escaped the wrath of Saul, but Saul's intentions are now pretty generally understood at least among Saul's closest companions in his court and his family. David must die. So the best thing that David can do right now is to get out of Dodge. This must be David's first stop, because Nob is just two miles' journey from the scenes of chapter 20. But remember that David has been hiding in a field for several nights. So he's hungry, and he needs supplies. Apparently, the priest understands that something must be wrong here, perhaps because David is alone, disheveled, and probably smells really bad. So he asks David a few questions. And listen to David's response. The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Okay, stop for a moment and think about that answer. Is David lying? Until recently, I was certain that David was lying. Now, as we saw last week, the law allows for deception if the purpose of that deception is to protect innocent life. So I'm not asking if David is sinning here. I'm asking if he's lying. If he was lying, that'd be okay. In fact, it'd be just like the lie that Jonathan just told his father a few paragraphs ago. So is this... What's happening here? Before you jump to conclusions, let me read you a few lines from David's songs. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. Or another song. Lift up your heads, O gates. 
and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Or another song. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Or another. Your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. These are the songs of David. The most intimate reflections on his thoughts and his hopes and his worship. As you reflect on David's songs, I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself this very important question. Who is David's king? Is it Saul? No. It's God. God is David's king. So what I'm suggesting here is that David rather than telling an outright lie, is actually telling the truth in a shrewd enough manner that the priest will remain innocent and yet render him assistance. I think this is a display of cunning that we haven't yet seen in the Samuel story. And I think we're beginning to glimpse an aspect of David that we haven't yet explored, his wisdom. It could be that David's answer is a lie. And if that's the case, it's okay. But I no longer believe that's what's happening because look, you remember where David went when Saul plotted to take his life? He went to Samuel, the prophet of God. He went to seek the counsel of God, his king. When David's life was in danger, he ran to the ambassador of his king and he asked, what should I do? Where should I go? He sought the counsel of the king. The king who had sent him on this mission. The king who had commissioned him to be the coming king of Israel. So when the priest asks questions, David's answer is perhaps stated with enough ambiguity to be misunderstood, but is actually perfectly accurate. From the moment that oil trickled down David's beard, the king of glory had charged him with a matter of a coming kingdom about which he could not freely talk. David was the promised king of Israel. And though his path to the throne would be perilous, God's might would work to keep him and to prepare him for the crown. Every moment from the moment that David was anointed has been a step closer to the coming kingdom of Israel. And David, full of the Spirit, is ever at work to see that kingdom established. David's response here is ambiguous enough. The priest would assist him on his journey without compromising his innocence because he believed that assistance was indirectly a service to Saul. So if Saul had indeed sent David, supplies for the journey and any other assistance would be required of Ahimelech. So he offers to help David. And David's biggest concern is food because he's hungry. Now what happens from this point is unique. Because Ahimelech admits that the only bread he has to give is the bread of the presence. In other words, the bread that's restricted. Only Aaron and his sons, the priestly line, 
are allowed to eat the bread that's prepared for the worship of God. Neither David nor David's companions are among the sons of Aaron. So he isn't allowed to eat this bread. That's why Ahimelech hesitates. He even asks whether David and his party are ritually clean. Whether they've kept themselves from those actions which would forbid them from ceremony. And I think he does this because David has asked for bread that's forbidden to to any but the priests. And that's bad enough. But it would be especially heinous if those consuming the bread of the presence were themselves unclean. And here again we get a, a glimpse of the heart of David. Listen to his response. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will, the, will their vessels be holy? Something we'll begin to see is that David's armies, when they go out on an ordinary journey, are expected to remain clean. And this is because David, David understands that his success is a gift from God. And it's a display of God's might. David will do everything in his power to ensure that his, he and his companions remain in God's favor as they go out to war. David sees the work of God in his victory. So he demands that his people remain ritually clean when they go out to the battlefield because they're about to see the work of God unfold. And he says, if this is the case on a routine journeys, how much more when the king has charged me personally with so important a matter? This is a matter personally handed to him by the king. This is a matter of the coming kingdom. And so David demands the strictest adherence to the mandates of the covenant. So the priest gives David the bread, and David takes it, and he eats, and he gives it to his companions. Now let's take a look back at the words of Jesus in Matthew 12. Jesus says, Have you not read... What David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So look, when you read the words and the work of Jesus, you've got to see him for who he is. Jesus is the anointed king on a mission to establish the coming kingdom. Jesus is the son of David, and the king of glory has charged him with the matter. He is on his way to do it. And while on his way, his companions ignored the law's restrictions. So when his enemies demand an explanation, the son of David points to David, who also was the anointed king and also was on a mission to establish a coming kingdom. And note this, he doesn't once argue that David didn't actually ignore the law's restrictions. He says plainly, David ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat. Now, I think you can begin to draw conclusions from this parallel alone. But then Jesus gives one more example. Keep reading. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? And are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. On the Sabbath, he says, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. What what is he referring to? 
Let me read to you from Numbers 29. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of flour mixed with oil and its drink offerings. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So this is a mandate in the law. Every Sabbath, the priests are required to slaughter two lambs and to offer them to God as a burnt offering with flour and oil and drink. And Jesus admits that this requirement to slaughter and to burn is indeed work. In fact, Jesus calls the work of the priest to slaughter and to burn, He calls that profaning the Sabbath. The law demands that no work be done on the Sabbath, and yet the law demands a greater work, a work that supersedes the restrictions on the Sabbath, the work of sacrifice. So the priests, by fulfilling the law, profane the Sabbath, and yet they are guiltless. And then he follows this illustration with the statement, something greater than the temple is here. So I want to follow with you the logic of Jesus' argument. It's up here on the screen. The Pharisees demand justification for ignoring the restrictions of the law. Jesus gives a series of answers. One, David, the anointed king on a mission to establish the coming kingdom, ignores the restrictions of the law without guilt. The son of David has has arrived, and he's on a mission to establish a better kingdom. And then the priests, as they offer sacrifices to God every Sabbath, ignore the restrictions of the law without guilt. Now the great high priest has arrived on a mission to offer a better sacrifice. And then he closes with this final word. And if you'd have known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is a reference to Hosea chapter 6. And that chapter begins with the following words. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. Listen to this, guys. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. These are the words of God to a people who have misunderstood the purpose of the law. Sacrifice isn't the end of the law. Keeping the law isn't the end of the law. Memorizing every tenet, teaching the law in every synagogue, building fences around every restriction until it's impossible to violate, all of these things miss the point of the law. 
The purpose of the law is to prepare the people of God for the mercy of Christ. The purpose of the law is to prepare the people of God for the kingdom of mercy. And the purpose of the law is to prepare God's people for Christ, the King of mercy. So when Christ's enemies attempt to use the law to overthrow His work, it's almost laughable. His response is so simple. You don't get it, Pharisees. Your entire lives revolve around a law which you don't understand. You can't weaponize a law that was written to prepare the world for me. The purpose of the law is to ready the people of God for the mercy of Christ. David violated the law's restrictions, yet was guiltless because the mission of David and the coming kingdom of Israel was a foreshadow of Christ's work. David was an instrument that God used to teach his people what the true king would be like. And David's kingdom was an instrument that God used to teach his people what the true kingdom would be like. The reason we read it is because David's shadow and the shadow of David's coming kingdom are always working to prepare the people of God for the coming kingdom of Christ. You cannot weaponize the law against David because at this moment, as the anointed king is on a mission to establish the coming kingdom, at this moment, David is embodying the law. Because David's work is to prepare the people of God for the coming kingdom. The purpose of the law is to ready the people of God for the mercy of Christ. So the priests who are slaughtering a lamb without blemish on the Sabbath violate the law's restrictions, yet were guiltless because that slaughter was a foreshadow of Christ's work to redeem His people. You cannot weaponize the law against the priests who brought sacrifices to appease the wrath of God because they were at that moment an embodiment of the law which is foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus. So when you read the law and you see the sacrifices, you are being taught, actively being taught about what the great high priest has done. And that is preparing the people of God for the coming kingdom of mercy. The purpose of the law is to ready the people of God for the mercy of Christ. And you cannot weaponize this law against Jesus because He's the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law. The law exists to prepare the people of God for Him. The sacrifices exist to prepare the people of God for Him. And the Sabbath exists to prepare the people of God 
for him. Jesus is Lord of the law. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. There's this story that Jesus tells about a rich man. We don't know much about him except that he lives lavishly and that he ignores the poor. And when he dies, he goes to hell. In the midst of his suffering, he pleads with Abraham to send someone to warn his family that they might not suffer in hell also. And Abraham's response is profound. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. See, the Scriptures were written to prepare people for the coming kingdom. Our coming kingdom. And they are your last best hope. They are a warning to those who would ignore the work of Christ. And they are an instrument to prepare those who would embrace the work of Christ. So let me ask you a question. When you read the Scriptures, is it an act of preparation? Do you read the Scriptures? Let me ask you a question differently. If you discovered a manuscript that had been handed down for thousands of years for the sole purpose of preparing mankind for an inevitable and lasting transformation of all that is to their glory or to their doom, wouldn't you read it? Carefully? Closely? As a matter of life and death? We read, man, a lot of passages this morning. But the message of all of them is actually quite simple. The Scriptures were written to prepare you for Christ's return. The Scriptures were written to prepare you for Christ's return. The story of David, the songs of David, the prophecies of Hosea, the story of Christ's life and death, the story of the rich man in hell, all of these were written to prepare you for Christ's return. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? If Christ came right now. When you read the Scriptures, is it an act of preparation? It must be. If it's not, make it so. Because the King of mercy will return. And He will bring with Him a kingdom. 
You will be part of it or you will not. And these scriptures are calling you to prepare. Let's pray together.